Welcome to Talking Feds, Women at the Table. I'm Melissa Murray, the Stokes Professor of Law at NYU School of Law, where I'm also Faculty Director of the Birnbaum Women's Leadership Network. And I'm Juliette Kayyem, Faculty Chair of the Homeland Security Program at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, former Assistant Secretary at DHS, and a CNN National Security Analyst. And I'm Ann Milgram, Professor of Practice and Distinguished Scholar at NYU School of Law, former New Jersey Attorney General and Executive Director of the Criminal Justice Lab at NYU. So this has been another big week in the news. We just passed the one-year anniversary of COVID and lockdown. And just as more people continue to get vaccinated, we saw Johnson & Johnson come out with its one-shot vaccine, which began rolling out across the country. Meanwhile, Democrats have headed into the final stretch of the COVID package after what was perhaps the longest Senate vote in history this week. And also this week, Attorney General nominee Merrick Garland nears his confirmation and awaits a number of challenges to that confirmation, including questions about his supervision of the prosecution of the January 6th Capitol siege. And in New York, Democratic leaders are calling on Governor Andrew Cuomo to resign over allegations of sexual harassment. And perhaps most importantly, at least for us ladies, Last night, Oprah Winfrey, the Queen of America, interviewed Meghan Markle and Prince Harry about their exit from the royal family. So I know what I thought, ladies, but what did you think about this bombshell interview? Just starting off, I want to say what an amazing interviewer I think Oprah Winfrey is. And and look, there's a lot to talk about from the interview, but she is phenomenal. She always knows how to ask the next questions. And she has just the right level of rapport with Megan and with Harry. I feel like I'm on first name basis with them now after watching that for two hours. But she's just the right level of rapport that she can push them and get information. It, it was it was artful. And, and I just, I found it to be fascinating, but also just really, to me, it was like, it was almost like an art of how to do an interview where she really bonded with them, but she knew how to just push them and and really hold them accountable to answer questions to her. So that's my biggest takeaway. So, you know, when you read headlines heading into an evening and they're like, oh my God, the most amazing comet is flying by or the moon's going to be something and you like run outside and it's like never as good as they deliver. And you're always like, why did I bother? Everyone was talking about it. So I'm a, you know, sort of royal watcher fan like everyone else. I love the crown. Some of my fondest memories is like waking up at four in the morning with my mother to watch the Diana wedding and Unlike most planetary events, this one delivered in remarkable ways. It wasn't just what Anne was saying in terms of the interviews, although although she is incredible. Like throughout the whole thing, I kept thinking, what about William? What's his relationship with William? And then, of course, it's the last one. So you leave on that. And then, of course, her, Megan, of course, first name basis, you know, just the not shock shock. I mean, I think it is. I think it is like, wow, she is telling her story I'm not surprised by any of this, but still it was shocking. And that ending about, and I'll be honest with you, like, do they survive? You know, this idea that maybe this is the happily ever after, that's a lot of stuff for people to go through. That was my takeaway. So I obviously have thoughts about this, Anne, (laughs) as you know. So like Juliet, I am a big longtime royal watcher. My family is from Jamaica, like you know, we are colonial in in a very deep, unfortunate way. And so I've been following them like, like you, Juliet, since I was a kid, but I don't think I really felt much of an affinity with them until Meghan Markle 
became a member of the royal family. Like here's someone who, like me, is a person of color. She is a sort of accomplished woman. I, I think that can't be undersold. You know, there are a lot of really interesting women in the royal family. The queen, obviously, Princess Anne, who's, you know, an accomplished philanthropist and whatnot. But there aren't that many self-made women in this family. And and here she is, like she has a point of view. She has her own ideas. She had a life before she came into this family. And you just sort of saw over the course of the last couple of years how they kind of wrung it out of her and like really just vilified her. And there was this horrible, horrible racialized aspect of it that I think people of color very much saw and recognized immediately. But the UK press just would not cop to it. And it was like the worst kind of gaslighting. And so I was just here for her telling her side of the story. And, you know, like she was vilified for doing so, but I was like, you know, you guys are lucky. She hasn't been talking all along. The fact that she's been quiet in the face of all of this for three years is a benefit to you. So she's here, she's talking. And what she had to say was so much worse than I think people even imagined it could have been. Yeah, I agree. I didn't expect the conversations about essentially like the mistreatment, his his father not calling him back, mm-hmm. the racialized conversation about their child and their baby. I mean, some of it, and Oprah, I thought, did a fantastic job of just capturing that moment of just, it's, it's almost impossible to believe. And yet I found them to be very credible mm-hmm. and to sort of be speaking from a position of like pain and suffering. But it went beyond what I... I expected them to detail harsh treatment, bad feelings. I didn't expect it to be to the extent that it it really seems like it it was. And I guess I wonder, and Melissa, I don't know if you or Juliet have a thought on this. I sort of wondered also, and, and in some ways, some of my sympathy came from the fact that in many ways from the outside, it looked like a fairy tale to a lot of people. And, and obviously different people saw different joys in it, but then- it's this incredible turning on its head of that fairy tale, the level of control, the level of just, I mean, the conversation about not giving their child a title or security, just yeah. these efforts to control and use power. I mean, it's it's not different from other things we've seen in history, right? Whether it's the royal family or other governments across hundreds of years. So, Anne, I think that point about security, I was surprised how much security sort of played into this, this physical security about we put our child out there and you're making us the most vulnerable. Megan is like, she's pretty smart. She's a, I texted to a girlfriend last night in the middle of when she was talking about sort of negotiating the ex. I was like, she's a businesswoman. She wants to go from a senior royal to whatever the, the other royals. In other words, she, she still wants the benefits of, of royalty. She wants them for her children. And then it's just like, the guillotine. And I didn't realize that part of that was them realizing they were likely to get stuck with no support, no security, and isolated in a Commonwealth country, which is probably less liberating for them. It's not surprising to me that security factored so heavily in their decision-making and that it was actually, I think, the prompt for a lot of their decision-making. When you think about the fact that his mother was untethered from royal security at the time where she tragically was killed in this car crash in the Paris tunnels. I mean, like so many people have talked about that. Had she been in the protection of royal protection officers, 
that likely would not have been the outcome. Like she would have been under their protection and she would have been safe. And so you can see why that factors so heavily in his thinking about it, but also hers. But I thought she made a very poignant statement when she said, you know, you are the ones who are basically fomenting this kind of vitriol towards us. You won't protect us. You won't refute statements that you know to be true. And in doing so, you've made us hated. And in making us hated, you've made our son and us less safe. No, I think that's right. Anyway, speaking of safety. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it is. It's, 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 it really is remarkable, the safety and security thing that you highlight. Because I don't think I had quite thought about it that way. Like physical security. Like this isn't just gossip. Like it's actually their, their physical, her mental health and, and the baby's physical security. And that the family cut them off and Tyler Perry was the one who, like, like Medea literally came to their rescue, which is insane. You know, it's funny, just before we pivot to other things, if you did a security analysis of their situation, right, Juliet, and yeah. I've done them in jobs, you've done yeah. them, there's no question that they have an enormous security risk being public figures of the sort they are and that their child particularly would. So, so it just sort of, it was eye-opening for me. Juliet, I wanted to ask you something because you and I did a podcast with Preet Bharara a year ago. Yes. Do you remember that? Just when COVID had hit, you joined us and we wanted you on to help us think about COVID. And I guess I was just sort of wondering for both of you, your reflections on COVID. Like this week has hit me hard. It's a year, almost a year from when we sort of locked down. I mean, yeah, I'm not loving this trip down memory lane. I find this week really hard. I write for the Atlantic. This was my first piece for them that was was out a year ago today. And it was called America. You have no idea what's about to happen. And rereading it was just, just felt sort of miserable when you knew what was about to happen. I'm generally quite optimistic right now in, in terms of looking at these numbers and, and seeing the CDC sort of starting to say, yes, life will be different. Because for the last two or three weeks, their messaging was really so cautious. I was worried it was going to lead to vaccine hesitancy. I, I sort of wonder with you guys, though, like all of us working mothers, all of our lives transformed physically. I think the challenge I'm having right now, and I don't know if it's PTSD or what, it's like... I hated so much of this year, but I didn't hate everything. And I kind of want to keep the stuff I didn't hate, but I don't know if I can keep it in the post-COVID era. So I'm like trying to figure out sort of what my life looks like, to be honest. I'm finding that the hard part of March. I mean, Emily Ramshaw, who is the editor-in-chief of The 19th, made a similar point on Twitter earlier this week. The idea of like putting on pants without an elasticized waist is a terrible prospect right now. Again, I will say, I think we can think about the upside of all of this because we're in incredibly privileged positions. Like we have not faced job insecurity, housing insecurity, food insecurity during all of this. And I think there are people for whom... This has not just been devastating, but like crushing and, and yeah. just awful yeah. in, in so many ways. But I, you know, I really, I, I'm a homebody anyway. Like I've never really loved running around and hanging out. I was made for this moment. And I think I've <laughs> adapted relatively well to staying in the house and only being seen from the waist up. Like this is exactly what I've wanted for so many years. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
Do not photograph me from below the waist. (laughs) I know, I know, we'll try. Melissa, thank you for making that point. I I have said my woes are ones of inconvenience, not of need. And I'm, yeah, and I'm glad you said that. But Melissa and I have never met in person and I'm a total extrovert total extrovert, like partying. And I like love bars and might have like this open house holiday party where like over like 150 people come over the course of six hours. I'm very Lebanese in that sense. So I'm like, Melissa, I'm going to, I'm going to hunt you down. I'm going to hunt you down when this is over. (laughs) My husband is just like you, Julia. And like literally the best part of this pandemic is not having to host the Christmas open house. And so (laughs) is he he Lebanese? (laughs) No, he's just from the South. And I mean, like, this is a guy who's like, people love visitors. I'm like, no, they don't. They do not love visitors. People do not love random people no. showing up at their home. I love it. No, I, I will say just one thing quickly. Periodically, my sons who know how hard this has been on me and my husband is is you. And my sons will just look at me and go, you're doing really good, mom. I'm like, thank you. Oh. <laughs> it's all reversed from when they were little. <laughs> when you used to say, good job, good job. And now they say it to you. Like we we got a pandemic puppy, which was like a huge joy because like, what else are you going to do when you're at home for this length of time besides train a dog? And so that's been super fun. And I'm glad that we did that, but I've enjoyed some aspects of this. And I'm, I'm grateful that we had this time together as a family. I'll be excited to go back in the classroom, but all the other stuff, wearing pants, nah, not interested. We know what Anne wants to do. She wants to get her hair cut. That was Oh, I do. I do. I so want to get my hair cut. Oh my God. You are not kidding. You're not kidding. And again, I totally agree, ladies. There's uh, we're so we've been very fortunate and we've lost family and friends, but over overall, we've been really lucky in what's been just a brutal year for yeah. so many people. But yes, I would like to get my hair cut without question. And actually I tried to I've cut my husband's hair, as you know, and I tried to convince my six-year-old that that I could cut his hair recently. And he just looked at me and he was like, never, never. <laughs> so I think, you know, I'm okay with, I would be okay with everybody being able to go get their hair cut. <laughs> we're getting there. I think we're getting there. Yeah. So the vaccine rollout has been really interesting, I think. You know, I'm teaching constitutional law this semester. And one of the things my students and I have been talking about is this whole idea that federalism, the idea that the states are all these various laboratories of experimentation What a terrible idea to have 50 different sites of experimentation about a vaccine rollout, though. I mean, so in California, I am eligible as an educator. My husband is eligible in New York because he has a pre-existing condition, but he's not eligible in California. I mean, it it just makes no sense. I mean, we have friends in New York who are working as they're working literally 24-7 to help vulnerable people find appointments. I mean, it's it's yeah. so disjointed yeah. and difficult that they're staying up till midnight when new appointments are released. And there's some Twitter websites that have been created for New York City, and there's some groups all going up and down, I think the East Coast and I'm sure around the country. But it just the fact that it should be this difficult yeah. it and this disjointed is just... And this digital, if the whole point is access, like why don't you just get a truck filled with vaccines mm-hmm. and go to low-income neighborhoods and completely vaccinate people? Yeah. The numbers are getting up there, so that's good. And in some ways, while federalism is causing that, like your story, Melissa, the husband, wife, which state are you in is like, it makes no sense. On the other hand, looking back, federalism kind of also saved us given the president we had then. So, you know, that, you know, and obviously there's going to be accountings about Cuomo and we'll get to him in a second and stuff, but 
the mayors who just closed down. I mean, they really, yeah. when you look back, so, so that makes me happy. We are going to be, because I have vaccine FOMO, totally, I'm dying here. We are going to be vaccine saturated by like the first week of April. So a lot of these blips will, will go away now. And then it's just like basically lots of shots, but I mean, we should just talk about how amazing that's pretty amazing. And I, and I think it's easy to like move beyond it, but I I think it's pretty amazing that we've gotten to this point or we're getting there. I will say, I, I just keep wondering, like some states are using the national guard. They're very effective at doing this stuff. Like there just are ways that even if you run things individually by state, like there are people who know how to do the logistics of this stuff and they do it with disaster management. And so it's like a little bit of a head scratcher to me of why we didn't start there. And, and I realize that some of the vaccines are more complex and there are issues, but it's like, why I can afford trouble, but why would I buy it? Right. Like why make this more complicated? And I feel like some of the States have just done that. Yeah. Well, some of the States are making lots of things more complicated by reopening while not everyone is still vaccinated. So they're like literally being mile 23.1 in a marathon and the crowds start to form and you know, you're going to make it by sheer well, yeah, completely. Just, I can't yeah. possibly stop. And then being like, you know what? Uh, maybe next time. No. <laughs> or, or like, you know what? This is a great yeah. time for me to take off my shoes and run. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> and run backwards. Oh God. You know, it's such a good analogy. I've only run one marathon in my life, but it's like, you're exactly right. And yeah. it's just sheer will to get yourself across yeah. the finish line at the end. Like no one enjoys I, mile 23. Trust us. We're no. not enjoying this either. Those of us inside, but. Do you know what else? So the marathon analogy is also important because if to the extent that you see this as a marathon, not a sprint, it lets you say, okay, you've got to wear your mask another six months or it just resets you in a way. And I think part of the problem has been like the way expectations have been set and it's just led to a lot of frustration. Personally, I love this mask thing. Like you don't have to wear makeup. You shouldn't wear makeup. It just gets on the mask. Like just put some glasses on and your mask and you're good to go. Like you literally cover your whole face. Like all the time women spend getting ready to leave the house. It's just, it's, you get back like 15 minutes every day. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) My feeling, my feeling is the question I've had is why have I never used a mask when I'm like clearing out boxes and clutter? They're very effective. So I'm keeping them around for the long haul whenever I have to do like a deep cleaning. See if I'm not wearing this mask around NYU next year just for fun. Just watch. I mean, like an airplane, I just can't imagine going on. An, why wouldn't I just wear a mask? Like it's a confined right. space. I know that it's it's safe, but yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, I just think it's some things. Why would I not wear it? Like, tell me like that should be the default. Let's talk about Andrew Cuomo, because I've been watching this from afar and wow, it is wild. Yeah. Like. Face touching. It's been head spinning. Yeah, it's been head spinning too, right? Every day there's something else. And did you overlap with, when were you? I did, I did. So I was first assistant AG when he was AG and then I was AG briefly, we overlapped. It, you know, I, I will tell you, he never came to the AG meetings. His senior deputies always went. So I really don't know him very well personally. We did work one investigation, one matter together briefly. Say it's really interesting watching this play out post Me Too because I think this conduct is the kind of stuff I think would have been very easily swept under the rug or dismissed as being kind of very de minimis in like maybe five or six years ago. But now, I mean, it it sort of goes to the question of what kind of dignity can you expect? Mm -hmm to have at work as opposed to like, did your boss sexually assault you? I I don't know that anyone has made broader allegations, but I mean, the stuff is just sort of like 
the kind of treatment that I think diminishes your dignity as an employee um, and an equal person in the workforce. The situation in which, you know, me as a, I guess she was a sort of special assistant type person, one of the accusers, would be alone with a governor, right? So just think that's 20 levels. The number of people who had to have known, because governors aren't generally just walking around offices and creating that atmosphere. And then there's another side to this, and it, it's less significant, but it's worth just saying, because I, I have a lot of female friends that have worked for him, have not had this situation, and they built a career supporting him. They're not with him now, but their careers, it's a huge part of I was this for Cuomo, I was that for Cuomo. And then this happens and it denigrates those who also committed. It's, it's, it's the women themselves, it's the voters, but it's also this team of people who were public service and they proudly say, I worked for Andrew Cuomo doing X, Y, Z in this space. And that's also a casualty of this is, is the other woman whose resumes will now also be suspect. Have an asterisk for forever. Yeah. 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 I've done some internal investigations around sexual harassment. So I did a large one into the Dallas Mavericks basketball team, but I've done some other smaller ones for private companies. The thing I'd say about this, just to your point, Melissa, a little bit, is that I agree. I mean, I think five or six years ago, I think that this would have been looked at differently. I also don't know that the same number of women would have come forward. So we now have five women coming forward, four who were employed by or for the governor and one who wasn't. So you wouldn't consider that under the sort of question of like employer sexual harassment. But it, it really, I, I think a lot has changed. The fundamental thing that I've been thinking a lot about is the way that it impairs women's ability to go to work and to just be judged based on their work. And you're talking about a lot of very young women. It's probably their first or second job. And what they want is the opportunity, right? All they're asking for is the chance to sort of prove themselves and have a job in government. This idea, and again, the investigation, they've announced it's going to be June Kim, who's excellent. He was the acting Southern District U.S. attorney with an employment attorney. I have an enormous amount of respect for June. I think he's excellent. So I have a lot of confidence that the investigation will play out right. I really also believe that this is like one of the key questions is beyond just the sort of individual allegations is, was there a culture there that was harming the ability of women to go to work and to feel comfortable going to work? And I feel like that is a conversation we would not have been having five or six years ago. So I think it's really important. I think the investigation is going to be really important. And I also think the other question is, will additional women come forward? And then the, the last piece, which I really think we haven't talked enough about, is that you know, when somebody makes an allegation of sexual harassment, there's an obligation to report and investigate. If what happened here was that women were, quote, voluntarily transferred, there are going to be real questions around that, about whether that was appropriately handled, because the law doesn't require somebody who's potentially a victim of sexual harassment to have to say, yes, I want my boss investigated. There's too much of a power differential. Well, there's a lot for us to sort of keep on the dashboard as this plays out, but I think that's going to occupy more and more of our time and our discussion as it goes forward. Now we are introducing a new feature, the hot flash. We pick a question from a listener and answer it in one sentence or less. So ladies, today's question comes from Ellen Watkins. She asks, this month is Women's History Month. In honor of this occasion, I'm wondering who is your most surprising shiro, female hero, and why? Sentence. It's hard. 
I have mine. I'm going to say, this is going to be surprising. I'm not going to say, like, usually I would say my grandmom, who I think was incredible, Skippy, we called her. But in the interest of picking someone who people will know, I love Julia Childs. Love her. I love her. Like, the chef, like, just it was sort of iconic, broke through a lot of barriers. I, and I loved her cooking shows. I love her cookbooks. And yeah, I don't know. She immediately came to mind when I saw that. I think she was also... Was she, did she work for the CIA also? Yeah. Like she's kind of yeah. a cool background, yeah. but she also just, I found her really inspiring. And it was one of the reasons I wanted to learn to cook. So I'm going to say Martin Ginsburg, who is not a woman, but is a Shiro because that guy literally lined up behind his wife and was a model partner who enabled his wife, Ruth Bader Ginsburg to basically scale the pinnacle of her career. And I think we should all be so fortunate to have someone like that in our corner. If not for that being such a good choice, I would call you out on cheating by picking a man. You said, she said Shiro. She said Shiro yeah, first. So that's, and- yeah, I did. I did. <laughs> so mine is someone famous. Maybe this is consistent with what I was talking to you both about earlier, about sort of figuring out the post-pandemic life. But I've always loved, my mom listening to this is going to laugh. I've always loved Jane Fonda for 10,000 reasons, but not the politics. The aerobics. Well, someone who sort of creates new chapters every decade. I mean, remember the Ted, remember the I'm married to Ted Turner and no one's going to watch me for 10 years. Like she's had, and now she's in like these great series and stuff. Just someone who, some women have a singular life and is totally successful. And then some have multiple lives. And I sort of always, I always enjoyed watching those multiple lives. What would happen if our three Shiro's had lunch together? <laughs> that would be a really well, interesting well, no. crew. I think Marty and Julia would love each I other. I think they would. Jane, she'd cook lunch. Jane, and then Jane bit. would make everyone work out after. Yeah, exactly. Exactly yeah. right. There's so many good women to choose from. And so I I feel, okay, you're right. I should have picked a woman. So I I will say Polly Murray, whom we've talked about on this show before. And I think, again, just does not get the kind of credit that she deserves for the work that she did. But again, a man who happily puts his wife first, like it shouldn't be as rare. Are you going to play this podcast for your husband? I'm going to play it for mine. (laughs) I'm going to play it subliminally at night while he sleeps. So it's sort of... (laughs) <laughs> Melissa's husband and I are going to conspire and do a joint holiday party next year and make Melissa come. Nope. Listen, I'll be there. I'll be there. And you are invited. And your husband. I'll be in the closet pounding diet cherry cokes and just trying to get through, rocking myself rhythmically to just get through the whole thing. The only person saying, I wish you were 2020. I wish it was. <laughs> I wish I were in lockdown. I wish I were. <laughs> I keep forgetting 2020. I, I like literally was doing something for taxes the other day. My husband finally said it wasn't 2019. It was 2020. I literally have like blocked out that whole year. It's like gone. Well, you know, my theory is that none of us had birthdays during 2020. So if you had a birthday, like we're still. That's great. Yeah, that's a, totally. No one, no one's going to hold you to that year. Oh, I love it. <laughs> That's it for the show today from the royal family to vaccines. That's hard to do, but we did it. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Anne. Thanks, Melissa. Thanks, guys. See you soon. Thank you. See you later. 
Talking Feds, Woman at the Table is produced by Harry Littman and Jennifer Bassett. Our associate producer is Andrea Carla Michaels. Our production assistant is Matt McArdle. Our audio engineer is Justin Wright from Seaplane Armada. And as always, thanks to the amazing Philip Glass for letting us use his music. Talking Feds, Woman at the Table is a production of Delito LLC. And we'll see you all next time. Next time.